You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. I'm here in the studio of Gangland Wire on a beautiful fall afternoon. I'm not on the golf course this afternoon, folks. In here getting ready to record a podcast for y'all. I have the grandson of James Diamond Jim Brocata. His grandson's name is Bobby Brocata. Now, Bobby, did I pronounce that close enough? Yes, sir. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. I like to say my Northwest Missouri nasal hillbilly kind of twang. <laughs> Here's a funny one about that. I just had a comment. Somebody said, it always seems weird to have a guy with a southern voice say the word capo. <laughs> now, I don't really consider I have a southern voice to you. I've got a northern voice to people up. This guy from Chicago, to him, I have a southern voice. So. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you, let you guys listen to Bobby talk a little bit, and you'll hear that soft, sweet, syrupy. South Louisiana voice, our true Southern voice, right? Yeah, it's a little different than, you know, New Orleans has its own unique accent. I've been confused as being from Boston or New York. Oh, yeah. You know, I hear that now. Wow, I do hear that. New Orleans has many dialects around the city, you know. And if you talk to different people, you can tell what part of the city they're from, you know. Interesting. So now let's get to the meat of this. You've written a book here recently called Food for Kings, and it's part true crime, it's part history, and it's part a recipe book, cookbook, if you will. Food for King, Diamond Jim, a New Orleans legend. Now, Diamond Jim Brocata was your grandfather, and it's a really interesting book, folks, especially if you like to cook. It's got those really great New Orleans recipes in it. And this guy, uh, your grandfather, your grandpa was one of the most colorful characters in New Orleans from what I've read about him. It was unbelievable. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in doing this particular book. Okay, Gary. Well, Gary, first off, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. First off, I'm married with two children. I was in the military for over 20 years. I retired in 2008, and uh, I've been an aircraft mechanic for American Airlines and now Delta. I picked up this project after my father died in 08. Basically, he motivated me to kind of pick up the torch and carry it. My dad was a dentist for 40 years, and he always wanted to do a screenplay, a movie, per se. He was never able to do it. I have, I did a screenplay originally, but I didn't go anywhere with it. So I decided a couple years ago to put a book together and kind of tell a story about my grandfather while I'm telling the story, basically blended in combination photos and recipes as I journey through his whole life. I start off when he's a childhood and carried on throughout his life until the success of his life until he died. It's a good read. It took me about eight years to go through it and do the research. I did get a lot of information from my father. My father had a manuscript. He had some depositions that he had put together with a, an attorney back in 1977. So I used all that information and took my time. Everything in the book that I talk about, I kind of support it with a document, an article, either that was given to me, handed down to me, or maybe that I've uh, actually found in the library. I found a lot of information doing the research about my grandfather in the library. His life, it was pretty easy because his life was documented since he was a teenager. So every time I tried to fill in the blank, something my father didn't pass down to me, 
I was able to basically answer all the questions that I wanted to answer about his life, you know. Now, interesting. Let's talk a little bit about his early life. He fought under the name of Jimmy Moran, which is kind of like, uh, I know, Joey Ayupa up in Chicago took on an Irish name in order to fight. I think more than likely it was a lot of prejudice against Italians back in those days, especially in New Orleans. Uh, if you remember, if you go all the way back to the Black Hand days and they uh, they killed the chief of police, Some uh, supposedly some Black Hander killed the chief of police and citizens of New Orleans stormed to jail and hung, I don't know, must have been six or eight Sicilians. I, I can't remember exactly for sure how many. So it would have been wise for him to fight under an Irish name, I would imagine. Tell me about his fight career. That's how he got started. Well, that was one thing that kind of intrigued my curiosity was, you know, why did he change his name? In the book, I did find a quote where someone asked him the same question during an interview. He said he did it for business reasons, but that was part of it because you got to realize he didn't get into business, open up his first restaurant until 1949. He changed his name. I found articles where he had his name changed in the teens, the early 1900s. He hung around a couple of friends of his, Pete Herman, who was an Italian. Peter Galata was his last name. And another guy by the name of Pal Moran, his name was Francis Paul Murana. And all three of them were full-blooded Italian. As you know and your listeners know that back then the Italians were kind of frowned upon. They weren't considered equal maybe to a lot of different, maybe the Irish or whatever. So... I found out he had changed his name. One, he didn't want his mother to know that he was fighting when he was on the fighting card, you know, and doing the preliminaries. An Irish fighter, an Irish name would draw bigger crowds for a fight. A lot of people don't know New Orleans was actually a big boxing city, equivalent to, you know, Chicago or New York, but on a smaller scale, of course. But it was a big boxing town, and it drew a lot of, and that's how he got to meet Jack Dempsey, Marciano, you know, all those big fighters back then because they came to New Orleans and he connected. So his first circle of friends were all Italians. Pete Herman was the Bantam champion. I think he had like 69 fights from 1912 to 1922. Now, as far as my grandfather, he wasn't as big of a boxer as those guys. He did it for, uh, through my research, maybe about six years. And then as he got a little older, he got into refereeing. And he started refereeing. He did that until about 27 years old. Then that's when he opened up his barber shop, and he opened up a barber shop with a boxing friend of his. His last name was Burke, and that's when he got into barbering after he was a referee. Found a funny story, and it's in the book where um, my grandfather was actually refereeing the the fight for Pal Moran, his friend, and a reporter came up to him and says, "Hey, what are you doing uh, refereeing this fight? Isn't that your brother or you know relative?" He says, "No, no, we so we're both Italians. We have different names." I'm Bricotta and his name's Marana, you know, and people were even challenging him, accusing him of, you know, being his brother where he would fight would be rigged or something like that. So that's kind of where his boxing career went. Interesting. So now the prohibition came along and uh, right. I believe he uh, did. He get, is that when he first got into the uh, restaurant business was during prohibition? No. So an interesting fact is he didn't open his first restaurant until 1949. Oh, that's right. You said that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So all of his associates and you know, whether it was Yui Long or any, you know, mobster, Frank Costello, all his circle of friends that he met were prior to 1949 because so much was documented. He had a speakeasy and he got raided and, and he went to jail and he was involved with Yui Long and, and all those people. So he met them through, through his speakeasy, which got raided in 1933. I don't know if you want to get into it now, but that's when he had a speakeasy, and Huey Long was in the uh, speakeasy at the time. He was a senator of Louisiana after he served one term as a governor. 
And Huey Long, he was actually shooting for the White House. And Roosevelt, some say they were trying to get some dirt on him. And there was a tip-off that he was actually in a speakeasy, and my grandfather's speakeasy called the Ming Toy. And they had a raid, but they got Huey out the back door. <laughs> uh, but the feds knew that Huey was in there, and basically my grandfather had to take the hit for him. And that's when my grandfather went to federal penitentiary in Atlanta. He served six months on a year sentence on good behavior. So that's kind of where that went, you know. So imagine that's where Frank Costello comes in because he was friends with Huey Long. He had to be because he had moved in all those uh, slot machines into Louisiana. And that was a big profit center, if you want to use that modern word for a big profit center for uh, Frank Costello back in those days. Well, through my research, the way, of course, everyone's going to have their own opinion. But basically, if you look at my research in my book, Huey Long, Robert Maestri, who was the mayor of uh, New Orleans for 10 years, who also my grandfather actually named my daddy after. My dad's name is Robert Maestri, Bocato. I'm junior. I have the same name. And then uh, Seymour Weiss, who actually owned the famous Roosevelt Hotel. And so my grandfather had the political friends first. And in my opinion, my grandfather was the liaison between Casello, different mobsters in the political world in Louisiana. And my grandfather was the one that actually got them all together. Now, there was, I don't know if you know this or not, there was a murder attempt against Huey. And my grandfather and, and Costello knew about it, and they tipped him off and basically saved uh, Huey's life. Mm-hmm. Now, now, that's not just me just saying this. This is in a deposition of what my father had said on a recording back in 1977 that I have. That's why I pulled that research from. So what happened, Huey knew that Costello and Castell wanted to come into Louisiana, New Orleans to bring slot machines in because at the time, LaGuardia was kicking, getting rid of all the slot machines in New York. So Costello was looking for a new home. And Huey Long knew about it. So basically after that murder attempt, Huey kind of felt like he owed him a favor. So that's when he got my grandfather together and he said, hey, let's get all the, everybody together. We'll meet down at the hunting camp down by Pasalucha, by the mouth of the river. We'll have a meeting and see if we can get this thing kicked off. But what happened, it all got started, right? That was 1933. Well, we all know that Huey got assassinated in 1935. And so what happened after he got assassinated, then it was kind of changed everything because they went from bringing the slot machines down here illegally to kind of illegal because they really didn't have the government or the governor of Louisiana in the support of it, you know? Mm-hmm. But my grandfather still had Robert Maestri, the uh, the mayor of New Orleans, in his back pocket. They were, like I said, they were very good friends. He named his son after him. That it helped him along to kind of carry it along because Maestri, he was in office from 1936 to 1946. So I think that's we got the ball rolling. Slot machines started coming in. Now after Robert Maestri got out of office, there was a governor by the name of Chet Morris who got in because there was a lot of pressure from the civilians of New Orleans to get rid of gambling because it was causing a lot of issues, whether it was religious groups or whatever. So when he got into office, he had a big campaign to get rid of all the slot machines in Orleans Parish. And if you know anything about New Orleans, we go by parishes instead of counties. Basically, all parishes are run independently to where basically now everyone's run out of Orleans Parish and now they run over to Jefferson. They got ran out of Orleans Parish, and then they went over to Jefferson Parish, but they just basically went across the river, basically, over to mm-hmm. the West Bank, you know? <laughs> the West Bank. <laughs> yeah. Well, Marcello, Carlos Marcello was actually 
running the West Bank. Like I said, I guess it's like Chicago back then. Everything was territorial. Yeah. Marcelo had the West Bank, Costello and Costello had Orleans Parish until 1947, you know? Ah, I didn't realize. Interesting. That That is interesting, the way they divided that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they had, I read an article the other day where Chet Morris, the new mayor, had come in. He destroyed all the slot machines, little hundreds of them, and he even found a warehouse that, that was housing a bunch of them in Orleans mm-hmm. Parish and got them all destroyed before they can get them all out and distribute it. And then I think, as you know, what happened, they actually changed a little bit their angle and they made it to where the slot machines were there and they would somehow or another, it would pay out with mints, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then somehow, I guess you'd go to the bar and then you give the bartender some mints and then he'd pay you out in cash. <laughs> they were more like candy machines. Yeah, that was interesting. We in over in Kansas City, Kansas here, it was 50s and 60s, all the way up to 70s. They had a similar kind of a deal. They'd get some kind of little tokens from the slot machine, and you'd have to go to the bartender to get paid out. You didn't get paid out at the machine. Eh? I think they still, to this day, maybe there's some places they do things like that. So oh, really? Interesting. But it started off with candy mints. Yeah, I do remember reading that. That was... Uh... <laughs> Actually, uh, the name of the company was Louisiana Mint Company. I had it down here somewhere. <laughs> own name for the company. <laughs> so now we're up to like World War II and Frank Costello is... His business is kind of going down and down there and there's a new broom sweeps clean kind of the same thing happened in kansas city is during those years uh, just prior to the war and then during the war and then right after the war it really started cleaning up and the old days were over and the gambling places and the slot machines were being banned and it sounded like probably carlos marcello probably he hung in there and expanded his base after that uh, in, in order to take over all of louisiana so your grandfather at 49 he's gonna open a restaurant is that the La Louisiane? Was that his first one? No, his first one was called Jimmy Moran's. Oh, he's hanging on to that Jimmy Moran. Thing. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's when he used the name. Now, just to kind of back up a little bit, I know we're kind of jumping around. His father died of yellow fever epidemic when he was seven. So he took to the street to New Orleans. He dropped out of school because he needed to support his mother. And he got out there and started shining shoes. And then he had no education. And he bought his first diamond at the age of eight for $5. I found that in many, many different mm-hmm. articles. Now, this is Diamond Jim. Diamond Jim, your grandfather. Okay, go ahead. And this was his dream to own diamonds one day. So during all this time, let me get this straight in my mind. So during all this time, when he's fighting and he's a referee and working in you know, the slot machines and those Costello and everybody, he loves diamonds. And he's already started buying diamonds and dealing around in diamonds. The situation okay. started at the age of eight. Okay. Long, long time ago when he was very young. So then what form did that take as he got older? I mean, he didn't have a jewelry store. No. He didn't. You know, what's really remarkable is when he opened up his first restaurant, the only thing he really did, like a major job, is he had his own barbershop. Barbershops don't make that much money. Yeah. You know what I mean? He went from barbering to speakeasy. And then, because he got out of prison in 1933, he opened his first restaurant, Jimmy Moran's, in 1949. And then that's where... He got his wife involved, my grandmother. Uh, she was the matriarch of it. She's the one that, that did all the cooking and, and put everything together. So when he opened up his restaurant, it was basically all the cooking was coming from the house, their mm-hmm. house on Royal and Esplanade, which is about eight blocks away from, from where the restaurant was. 
restaurant was on St. Louis Street, 809 St. Louis Street. So he had that restaurant until 1954, where he actually opened up La Louisiane, which was just uh, about three blocks away on Arborville Street. And that was his dream of opening up. La Louisiane is a restaurant similar to like Galatoire's or Antoine's, if you know anything about New Orleans restaurant, where it's been around for over 100 years. So basically, he was just the next owner okay. of owning a restaurant. And because it was a restaurant before he owned it. And then they sold it to him. And then after my grandfather died, then my uncles picked it up and they carried it on for um, until the late 1990s. My uncles mm-hmm. did, you know, and they opened up several more after that. That was his dream to have La Louisiane. And when he did, by the time he opened up La Louisiane, he was in his full bloom as far as in his life. He had a circle of celebrities and boxers and, and people that he thought he was a celebrity himself. He was. He was in his own way. So here's what you got to tell us about the diamonds and the meatballs. You got to tell us about that. Okay. So it's in the book. Basically, my grandmother would make all the meatballs. And one particular day, she lost her wedding ring as she was rolling the meatballs up. Because you got to realize the meatballs were rolled at their house. Yeah. You know? and, she, and then they would deliver them by taxi cab and she'd make 50 at a time. And she delivered it. But after she had delivered them, she realized her wedding ring was missing. Well, she went down to the restaurant and she told my grandfather, hey, I think I lost my wedding ring in one of these meatballs. And we got to find it. And right then the light went on. He goes, no. He goes, what a, a beautiful publicity move. He's like, look, I'll buy you a bigger and better ring. Don't worry about it. And so that particular night, somebody got a diamond. So that's when it started. It's in the book where I found the first winner of 1949, and he gave away diamonds in the meatballs until he died, until 1958. Uh-huh. And he probably gave away at least one a week because uh-huh. I found many advertisements because he'd always advertise before he would do it to draw people in. And then after the winner, he'd have the winner in the paper the following day. You know, and uh, <laughs> he, he was a master he was. advertising. He you know, <laughs> you, you, you spend a dollar to make a dollar, right? Yeah, yeah. That's how, that's how he did it. <laughs> he, was, he was spending a dollar to make $10. I got a feeling there. <laughs> Absolutely. He was. He, he was a master publicist. <laughs> yeah, he was. I need to hire him to promote my podcast. <laughs> I'm sure he have a few ideas. Oh, yeah. He's one of those guys. So, you know, I've seen some of these pictures, picture in here on the front page. You know, I, I held that up once so folks can see what that looks like. But let me get that over in front of it. But uh, you see those glasses there? Those are all diamonds on that. And he's got diamonds on every hand. He's got diamonds everywhere. What was it? He was like cloaked in diamonds. Well, he had diamonds in his teeth. And I always like telling the story how that came about. Because that was one question I had. Every time I was putting this book together, I was like, well, why did he do this? When did he do it? And I had questions in my mind that I wanted to be answered. And I found out there was a guy in Houston by the name of Doug Prince. And he was also a, a diamond admirer. And he sent a message to my grandfather and said, hey, what do you think about this, Diamond Jim? I got a diamond toothpick. And my grandfather thought, okay, what am I going to do to outmatch this guy? You know, with a diamond <laughs> toothpick. So my grandfather got with a dentist. And made them be like putting a bridge in where it would pop in in your palate and it would be all in the front of your teeth. Yeah. And so he took a picture of himself and he sent it back to Doug Prince and he said, what do you think about this? And he says, next time you think about trying to mess with a champion, you better come with more than a toothpick. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. He was a character. 
an interesting story in there. I thought he would go to the Kentucky Derby every year. That was like the event of the events, especially throughout the South and the Mid-South, and people from the North would come down too. But it was where anybody who was anybody would be at the Kentucky Derby, and they would pay him to come and be a celebrity there. That's like they'd pay movie stars to come and, and just hang out. I didn't even know that they did that back then. Well, yeah, they paid him, and there was one particular article I found where the racetrack steward was getting upset because he had such a large crowd around him where he was signing autographs. Nobody was going to the wagering window <laughs> to wager for the races. So, so the track was losing out money when he was over there, you know, drawing all the attention, you know. <laughs> Man. <laughs> but he started going in 1928 until his death. I found where he, he attended the first, maybe he attended derbies before 1928, but the first article I found was 1928. He went every year. He had his own car on the train. And I don't know if he had to go to Chicago and back, how the train network worked back then, but he would take a train pretty much up there and back mm. every derby. Interesting. And then when he would go, he'd be in full splendor, dressed to the nine. There's several photos in the book where he's decked out. I mean, he, he wouldn't let anybody outdo him. You know, he'd go with a fur tie, fur hat, and then and have enough diamonds. So I did the diamond equivalency today, which would be like wearing like $2 million of diamonds on your body. There's <laughs> uh, an article that documented that he wore 425 different separate diamonds. So I think he was carrying all of his wealth on his body every day. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I like this ad. Diamond studded meatball and spaghetti, $1.90. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And you can even get a diamond, too. <laughs> Possibly, if you're there at the right time. There's a recipe in here for the diamond-studded meatballs and spaghetti, folks, so you better get this cookbook. Looks like regular meatballs here for a while, but then all of a sudden he adds a bunch of other things in it that sounds awfully good. Yeah, that would be good. There'd be some rich meatballs, lots of cheese in them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Another story I'd like to tell you, doing the Key Farber hearings, which started 1950 to 51, Right. People don't know that. That was one of the most watched televised paper. They even put it in the movie theaters. And everybody, it'd be equivalent to everybody watching, you know, whatever today, you know, politics, whatever. Yeah. Many gangsters and different people in, in that scene back then were being called, been summoned to court. And my grandfather was called for a witness. And I found an article where as he was walking into the courthouse, the, the lawyer turned to him. And he goes, look, you might want to take some of those diamonds off. Do not look so ostentatious. Do not look so flamboyant. Otherwise, they may drop the hammer on you. And my grandfather turned to him and he says, is this going to be on TV? He goes, absolutely. He goes, well, then the ice stays. <laughs> the ice stays. <laughs> Classic line. Yeah, those keep off for hearing. They define what we visualize or we envision as a mobster. Frank Costello sitting there smoking a cigarette and he says something about, well, what have you ever done for society? Well, I pay taxes and uh, the classic lines like that. Several of them wearing sunglasses inside and being insolent and, you know, the given doing the fifth saying, I plead the fifth and things like that. That really, really grabbed the attention of the whole nation. That's for sure. We had a guy in Kansas City uh, was a big time a guy and he was wanted everybody to think he was a big time guy and, and they asked him well how much money he had in his pocket so he pulled out like twenty five hundred dollars I think in hundred dollar bills and counted it out for him on the table right there so 
<laughs> it was a different world back then, wasn't it? It was totally different. But that thing, it just it gave national reputations to people that most people had never heard of. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little more about some of these recipes. These are, these are recipes that were used in the La Louisiane. Well, the, the recipes, because I didn't have, you know, my grandfather died before I was born. I got with my mother who used to live with my grandfather. And of course, before my daddy died, you know, he taught me a lot of the recipes that were passed down from his father and his mother. And I knew my grandmother quite well, too. She died when I was 12 years old. So and I also worked at the restaurant when I was younger. I worked for my uncle. So I was able to get a lot that way. I actually pulled my brother and my sister and a couple of my cousins in to help me. And we all got together and we all put our heads together to put all these recipes together. Hmm. Like a picture of your cousins there making they had handmade fettuccine, making fettuccine at the restaurant. Yeah, that's right. Well, what happened after my grandfather died, my uncles took it over. And at the time, you can look on my grandfather's menu. He didn't have fettuccine at all. He didn't do cream sauces. Oh, really? And then when my, uh, my grandfather died, my uncles took it over. And what they did, they actually brought in fettuccine. They actually went to Rome, bought some uh, pasta machines, and La Louisiane started serving fresh pasta. Fettuccine, mm-hmm. spaghetti that was made right there in the restaurant. And that's just a picture of, of my cousins kind of all helping to make pasta. Hey, I'm looking at this one cauliflower soup. I'm going to have to take that into the kitchen and leave that in a prominent place. <laughs> that's, that's probably the simplest recipe in the book. There's not a whole lot to it, but yeah, I love it. I love cauliflower. So, yeah. Yeah, that does sound good. All right. Well, Bobby, this has been great. Is there any other final stories you want to tell? And then we'll talk about where we can get this book. and uh, I think we kind of touched a little bit on everything. Okay. I will mention, did you see in the book about the ice bucket and the tradition of the ice bucket? I, you know, I didn't see that. Okay. Well, on the menu, it was called a bucket of beer. And my grandfather would pour a couple of bottles of beer into the bucket and, uh-huh. and you would drink out of it. And there's uh-huh. just several actresses and famous people or just your everyday person drinking out of it. One particular uh, night, my grandfather gave one to Joe DiMaggio, and he engraved on there. It's in the book, To the Greatest, Joe DiMaggio from Diamond Jim in New Orleans. Yeah. And uh, he gave it to him. In 2007, my dad called me, and he says, hey, you want to go to New York? I was like, why? He goes, Joe DiMaggio's having his estate auction, and that stainless steel bucket that my father gave him is up for auction, and I want to buy it. I was like, sure. Yeah. So him and I went to New York, and he brought about $8,000. He only needed 2500 of it, but he bought that bucket back, and he carried it all the way back like it was a baby, like oh, man, he was bringing back an heirloom part of his family. Yeah, That's quite a story. Actually, I did. when you start telling that story, I do remember that about buying the bucket back from Joe DiMaggio's estate. That is a heck of a story there. There was actually a guy bidding against him doing the auction, and every time that guy would raise his hand and bump it up a little more, my dad was getting infuriated. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> he goes, you don't understand. This is personal, man. This is- <laughs> yeah. He was willing to go to $8,000. I tell you what, uh, whoever was running that estate sale, if they'd only known that, they'd have jumped in there with a shill and just kept uh, upping you and upping you. <laughs> Your dad would have been jumping over the chairs trying to pop somebody if they kept doing that, push him up to 8000 He wanted that bucket, man. Yeah, cool. That's a story. That, I got that, that story is, that in is. there with Joe DiMaggio. And, of course, Joe DiMaggio was in there a lot. As a matter of fact, there's an article where Joe DiMaggio was playing for the Yankees one night in New York. And I got an article in there where he gave my grandfather his box seat 
which was right there on first base or base yeah. or whatever, and he actually sat in his seat. They were very, very close. Uh, yeah, I noticed several pictures of Joe DiMaggio in there and Joe in Maryland, so cool. Yep. All right, great stories. So, Bobby, you can get this at, um, let's see now, do you have a website? It's on eBay. I got it on eBay, and then it's on Amazon as well. Oh, okay. It, uh, just search on eBay or Amazon for Food for Kings, The Legend Continues by Bobby Brojada Jr. And that's what it looks like, folks. You guys in the audio won't be able to see that, but go to the YouTube site, kind of get that back a little bit. It's a great book. It's really interesting and some good recipes in there. And as soon as I get done here, I'm going to take that cauliflower sloop recipe in there and just lay it out. <laughs> See if I can stir any interest up with the other unit that lives here with my wife. <laughs> she never listens to these podcasts, so I can say anything about her. <laughs> well, if she's got an issue with it, she can call me up. and. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks a lot, Bobby. Okay. All right. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you, man. It was great having you here. I thank you for listening and supporting Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If you want some more connection to the show, find my private Facebook group called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. I only admit podcast listeners. Have a public page, Twitter feed, and Instagram all under Gangland Wire. Or you can email me at ganglandwire at gmail.com. As a lot of you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. On the shop page, you'll find a donate button to support the podcast. Now I realize that some of you may be out of work because of this dang virus, and I don't want you to even think about donating. But for the rest of you guys, for $25 or more, I have different rewards depending on how much you give me. Plus, another way to support my work is to go to Amazon and rent my documentaries, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or encourage your friends to do that. I have a book about the Las Vegas casino skimming investigation titled Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now, that's a mouthful. I don't know what I was thinking when I titled that book. If you get the Kindle version, you'll get links to hear the actual wiretaps. Finally, don't forget you can buy me a cup of coffee or a shot in a beer with your Venmo app at Gangland Wire. You know, recently I've started hosting some Zoom calls that are restricted to fans who have supported the podcast in some manner. Besides cash donations, some of you are helping by becoming editors on my Facebook pages and keeping them filled with fresh content. And if anybody wants to write short blog pieces, no more than 100 or 150 words, and attach relevant photos, you can send those to me and I'll put those up on the Facebook. I have folks already like Ken C. from Arizona and Basil T. from Dallas helping with that. And they have both been doing a great job. I really appreciate what you guys have done. Every Facebook page can use more and more accurate content. People out there are starved for good, accurate content. Let me know if you're interested. Time for my public service announcement. Right now, Gangland Wire is supporting PTSD treatment and recovery for veterans. If you're a vet and you think you may need help with PTSD, call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can text at 838-255. The VA also has a website with lots of resources at www.ptsd.va.gov. Well, as we used to say, I'm 1042. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.